Good morning. It's a joy to be with you. Uh, yeah, it was fun having uh, doing laser tag with you. No, I, I didn't actually do that well. In fact, I remember there was just someone from uh, this body here. I remember just, just kept shooting me in the head over and over again. So actually, it was a pretty humbling experience on the whole. But <laughs> well, I'm so excited to be with you this morning. I want to pray for us and then, uh, then we'll just jump right into it. Uh, God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for bringing every single one of us here. Lord, I pray that uh, you would encourage this body through your son, Jesus Christ, through the word. God, I pray that uh, you'd speak through me. Lord, I pray that uh, what would come out of my mouth this morning, Lord, would ultimately be from your word because your word, God, is our only solid foundation. Thank you, God, for your church. Be with us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And uh, while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Has anyone ever tried to comfort you by telling you everything's going to be okay? Has anyone ever tried to comfort you or console you by saying, hey, everything is going to be okay? You know, if so, I imagine perhaps in some situations, that might be exactly what you need to hear, right? Your toddler's throwing a temper tantrum. Tell your toddler, hey, everything's going to be okay. That might be just what your toddler needs to hear in that moment. But in other situations, I imagine if someone says that to you, those words feel kind of hollow, kind of empty, a little meaningless, unfounded. And I don't know this from personal experience, but I would imagine that the more life you live, the more skeptical you are when someone tells you everything's going to be okay. I reason that because I imagine the more life you've lived, the more you've seen just how wrong life can go sometimes, how not according to plan things can go. It's hard to hear those words, everything's going to be okay. They feel empty sometimes. Has there ever been a time in your life, and maybe this is where you're at this morning, where you've really wondered that question, is everything really going to be okay? Am I going to make it through this? Will I overcome? And my main point I would like to leave with you this morning is this from John chapter 16. You will overcome because Christ overcame. You will overcome because Christ overcame. So this morning we're going to be in John chapter 16. I want to give you some context though before we jump into this passage. John is one of four books of the New Testament in the Bible that are all about Jesus' life, death, resurrection. Those books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're in the, the fourth of those four books. They're known as the Gospels. And the passage we're going to study today is part of a larger section within the book of John that's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's basically everything from chapters 13 to 17. It's called the Upper Room Discourse because at this point in our story in the Gospel of John, Jesus is in this upper room during the Feast of Passover with his disciples, and he's teaching them. And his teaching here is extremely significant because this is the last time he's going to really teach them before he's betrayed, arrested, and crucified. All of the next chapter, chapter 17, is a prayer from, from Jesus to his father that's known as the high priestly prayer. And so what that means is that what we're going to cover, the, the last portion of John chapter 16 this morning, you can kind of think of this as Jesus' last official teaching to his disciples before his crucifixion. It's pretty important stuff. I want to start reading in verse 25, John chapter 16, verse 25. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. 
The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So Jesus, he's in the upper room with his disciples, and he's just finished teaching them on so much stuff. He's, he's been teaching them that he's the way, the truth, and the life. He's been teaching them that, that he's going to send the Holy Spirit, the helper, who's going to be with them, dwell within them. He tells them that soon their, their sorrow over his, his absence and the crucifixion is going to turn to joy when they see him in his resurrection. Teaches all his disciples all these things. And after all of this, in verse 25, Jesus tells his disciples that a time is coming when he's going to tell them about the Father plainly. No more riddles, no more trying to guess at what he's getting at. The time he's referring to is after his resurrection. Jesus is saying, disciples, after my resurrection, I'm going to tell you about the Father plainly. We know this because in Luke 24, chapter 45, it tells us that after Jesus' resurrection, he appears to his disciples and opens their minds to understand the scriptures. This is because there were things that Jesus taught his disciples that just couldn't make sense until after the resurrection, so I'm married, my wife Alex, uh, she's about 10 weeks pregnant right now uh, with our first child, and so I, I sort of understand what it would be like to be a father, but in a much more real sense, I have no idea what it's like to be a father. It's all conceptual for me right now, and it'll continue to be conceptual until I actually see this child that I'm so excited for and hold it in my arms myself. And so, you know, after service, you can come tell me about the joys of, of parenting, the, the hardships of being a father, all of that. And I might track with you to a certain degree, but really, it's all just going to be conceptual. I won't really understand what you're saying until I'm there myself. I won't have the full picture until after the birth. And this is kind of where the disciples are at right now. They, they, they're trying to track with Jesus. In fact, they, they actually really think they're tracking with Jesus, but they can't get the full picture yet, not until the resurrection. They don't yet see how Jesus' death is necessary. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, In that day, the day of my resurrection, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. This is awesome. This is an incredible promise. Jesus is telling his disciples, he says, guys, you can soon take your requests straight to the Father. You can soon take your requests straight to the throne. You don't need me to be your prayer middleman. You don't need a prayer delivery service. Why? Because the Father himself loves you. And maybe you hear that and you're thinking, I, I thought Jesus was our intercessor. I thought he stands between us and God so that we can come to God. You're right. Jesus is the intercessor. We can only go to God the Father through the Son. But what Jesus is saying here doesn't take him out of the equation. He's, he's still our great high priest. He's still our intercessor before the Father. But Jesus wants his disciples and he wants us to see that through the cross, we have direct access to the Father. Through the cross, we have direct access to God the Father. Christian, in Christ, you have unrestricted, unlimited, ad-free access to the Father. You've got like the top-tier subscription. 
But my question for you is, is do you pray as if that's true? Does your prayer life reflect this incredible truth? Because I think that at least for myself often, and I think for many Christians, maybe most Christians, we have this constant kind of like low-level guilt about our prayer life. We know we should be praying more. We're not praying enough. And so we just kind of feel guilty. But I don't think that guilt is super productive, at least not for me. That guilt is rarely productive in my life. It makes you feel bad, but it rarely leads to change, does it? So how do you change? How, How do you grow in your prayer life? Well, it starts when you realize that prayer isn't something that you have to do. It's something you get to do. It's a, it's a privilege that was bought through the blood of Christ. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is awesome. Like, what a privilege. When you are struggling in your faith, when you are suffering, when you are just, you don't even know how you're going to make it to the next day, you can limp your way to the Father's throne and find help because he delights to hear you because he promises that you'll hear him through his son man you can ask him to intercede for your friends who are going through trials you can ask him to save your family who's lost and you can trust that he's going to hear you and he's going to answer according to what's going to be best for you what's going to be best for his glory in the long run but there's another important reality that i want you to see here and that is the motivation behind this access we have to the father the motivation here is love. It's motivated by love. That's, that's why God opened this pathway to direct prayer. It's because he loves us. I don't know if you've ever seen a video like this. I, I've seen videos like this before where someone owes money to usually like a government service, and they think it's unjust. They think it's the, the fine is ridiculous. Maybe it's a parking fine or something. And so what they decide to do is they decide to take out their entire fine and pay it all back in pennies. Super petty. I saw a video one time of a guy who just went into some sort of government office with a wheelbarrow full of pennies. So he just wheels this thing right up and just dumps it (laughs) in this big mound right in front of the desk as everyone's just like watching on in horror. Um, Obviously, the workers, as you can imagine, they're not super thrilled about this. They're pretty upset. But it's real money, so I assume they don't have a whole lot of recourse. They kind of have to accept it no matter how how annoyed they are by it. And I think some people have an idea that, that like God's just, God just grudgingly accepts Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. I think sometimes people have that idea, maybe you have that idea, that God just grudgingly accepts Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sin. Like, like he really wants to judge us, but because of Jesus, now he can't. He has to accept the payment, but he's not happy about it. But in this passage, we see that the exact opposite is true. What is Jesus saying to his disciples here in verse 27? He's saying, you guys, the Father loves you himself. And after my death and resurrection, he wants you to be able to go straight to him in prayer. Unrestricted, unlimited access. You know, it brings up a question. Why did God save you? If you're you're here and you're in Christ, why did God save you? Did he save you so that he could just kind of impersonally pay your debt and let you go? Kind of like a lifeguard saving someone from drowning, right? Just pull them out of the water and you both go on with your lives? Is that, is that what God's salvation was for you? Or did God save you so that you could have communion with him? So that you could have a relationship, a vital relationship with him? Just as a side note, if Jesus says that you don't need him, the son of God, to be a middleman for your prayers, 
It's safe to say that you don't need a priest or a pastor or anyone else to be a middleman for your prayers to the Father either. And don't get me wrong, I ask people to pray for me all the time. We should, we ought to as Christians, but I don't do it because I think that God hears them and not me. I do that because we're called to share and bear our burdens with each other, but that doesn't stop me from taking those burdens straight to my Father, myself. The point is, though, is that that we don't have to pray. We get to pray. It is a sweet privilege. Look back at verse 27. Jesus says, The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I think this verse, surface reading, could maybe confuse you. I want to clarify. Don't let this confuse you. Jesus isn't saying to his disciples that since they love Jesus, therefore God the Father loves them, as if it's some sort of works-based salvation. This is the same John writing this who wrote in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So to be loud and clear, we, we don't earn God's love by first loving him. No, God first loves us. He always makes the first move. He loves us before we're capable of loving him. But like the disciples, we are right to respond to God's love with our own love. We're right to respond to God's love by believing that Jesus is his son. And finally, in verse 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. This is a cool kind of just summary of his entire ministry, of his entire mission. He came from the Father into the world, and soon as he's thinking ahead to the cross, he's going there in just a matter of hours, saying, soon I'm going to leave the world and go back to be with my Father. And now let's look at verse 29. So the disciples, they've been quiet for a while. In fact, several chapters now. They've just been listening to Jesus teaching them in the upper room. Now we're going to hear what they have to say after everything Jesus has taught them over the past few chapters. Verse 29, Jesus' disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. These poor disciples, they're trying their best. (laughs) They are trying their best, but they don't get it yet. And I'll explain why. So first they say, basically they're saying, oh Jesus, we're totally tracking with you now. Now we get it. Now you're speaking plainly. But, But Jesus, if you remember back, Jesus told them just seconds ago that the time is coming when he will speak to them plainly about the Father. It's not here yet, but the disciples are like, no, it's, we're, we're pretty sure it's here. We're pretty sure we understand you. Trust us, Jesus. Trust us. We, we're tracking with you. And then in verse 30, they, it says, they say, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. That is why we believe that you came from God. Most likely, they're talking about the fact that Jesus seems to anticipate questions before people ask them. You see this a lot with the religious rulers. They'll be thinking something in their hearts, and Jesus responds to their heart before they even say it out loud. So the disciples are telling Jesus, hey, we believe in you because you know everything, you know all things, you know man's heart. And they're confident that Jesus is from God. They say as much, and at least they think that they're confident that Jesus is the Son of God. But, you know, this interaction here, it's kind of an echo of another one in the Gospels of when Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him. Here's, what, here's where it's, what it says, Matthew 26, in verse 31, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus tells him what's going to happen. Here's what Peter says, verse 33. 
Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This wasn't just Peter. All the disciples were like, yeah, Jesus, we're not going to deny you. We're not going to betray you. We know you're from God. We know you know all things. You think we would deny you? We would rather die. Let the Romans kill us. Some big talk. Some big words. And Jesus says back to them right after that, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming indeed. It has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. You know what the disciples affirm in this passage is theologically true. It's theologically accurate. They're right. Jesus does know all things. That's true. They're right. Jesus is the son of God. He did come from God. That's true. But, but that knowledge isn't going to stop them from scattering like cockroaches in just a few hours when the Romans come. Because that, as it was prophesied, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. These young men, they've been living with and learning from Jesus for three years. These are some of his closest friends. And, and in his most difficult moment, in the greatest trial of his life, they will all abandon him. But what does it say in verse 32? Jesus says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Because even when Jesus was abandoned by every single one of his friends, he wasn't alone. He was never alone. His Father was with him. And you know what? If you're in Christ, if you're in Jesus Christ, and even if it feels like everyone on this earth has abandoned you and betrayed you, you are not alone. The Father will not abandon you in Christ. Jesus is just a few more words for his disciples. In fact, you know, in the Gospel of John, these are essentially Jesus' last words of instruction to his disciples on this side of the cross. I want to read these together in verse 33. Verse 33, it says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is where we're going to stay for just the rest of our, our time here this morning. Just this, this one verse. Frankly, this verse could, could be three sermons all by itself. I want to remind you again, our main point this morning is that you will overcome because Christ overcame. You will overcome because Christ overcame. And in this verse here, verse 33, Jesus makes three promises to his disciples. Three promises, and these promises are for us too. First, in Jesus, we can have peace. In Jesus, we can have peace. Second, in this world, we will have tribulation. And third, we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. In Jesus, we can have peace. Let's start there. In verse 33, he starts out by saying, I have said these things to you. Again, these things, that's everything Jesus has been teaching in the upper room. Everything he's been teaching them. He's saying, I've said all this, I've taught all this to you guys so that you could have peace. What, what do they need peace for? Why do the disciples need peace? Well, in a matter of hours, what's going to happen? Their rabbi of three years is going to be seized and dragged away by a mob of Roman soldiers and Pharisees right in front of them. And if they don't see it for themselves, they're going to hear about how he was mocked, how he was beaten, and how he was nailed to a cross, and how he died and was placed in a tomb. Can you imagine their grief? This was their rabbi. This was one of their closest friends for three years. 
Can you imagine their confusion? And their idea of who the Messiah was, the Messiah was, was going to conquer the Romans, not be crucified by them. And can you imagine their fear? If they did this to Jesus, what would they do to his followers, his disciples? The disciples really needed peace. Jesus wants them to have peace. Just moments ago, he told them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Christian, are you at peace this morning? Are you at peace this morning? Maybe you are, praise God. I'm glad to hear that. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're grieving or or you're confused or you're fearful. I want you to know this morning that just as Jesus spoke to his disciples for their peace, God speaks to you in his word for your peace. He speaks to us in his word so that we can have peace in this book, the Bible. The Bible is so full of promises of God's faithfulness, but the thing is is that if your life isn't built on the word of God, if you don't have rhythms in your life where you are hearing and contemplating and meditating on God's word, then this book's going to be about as helpful to you as a bottle of medicine that remains unopened. Part of abiding in Christ is abiding in his word, living it, breathing it, learning from it daily. And there's two words here that I don't want you to miss in in this verse. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Those two words, in me, are so, so important when we think about where this peace comes from. Because Jesus doesn't say, in money you may have peace. He doesn't say, in owning a house in Hollister, which is really just as expensive as anywhere else now, right? In owning a home, you'll have peace. He says, in me, you may have peace. That's because if you try to find peace and security in anything but Christ, ultimately, it's shaky ground. It's not going to hold. In Christ, we have real peace, peace that doesn't let us down. Here's the second promise Jesus makes. He says, In this world, we will have tribulation. What does tribulation mean? We don't use that word a whole lot in daily language. It means affliction or distress. In fact, if you look up just a little bit earlier in this chapter, verse 21, Jesus gives this illustration of a woman in labor. He says, when she has delivered the baby, baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. That word for anguish just earlier in this chapter, it's it's the same word here for tribulation. So Jesus, he's promising his disciples, he's promising us by extension as his disciples that in this world, we're gonna have tribulation. We're gonna have affliction and we're gonna have distress and we're gonna have anguish. This was certainly true for the disciples and not just for the fear they felt you know, between Jesus' death and his resurrection. I mean, these guys, they faced persecution for the rest of their lives. Some of them faced martyrdom. They They were crucified themselves. They were killed. They were stoned. I don't think I need to convince anyone here either that we experience tribulation too, whether that's a result of our faith or whether that's just life in a fallen world. We all experience tribulation as well. If you haven't yet, I don't say this to scare you, but it's just, it's just a matter of time. That's life in a fallen world. Jesus promises that in this life and in this world, we will have tribulation. That was true then. It is still true today. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, how is this a promise? (laughs) This is a promise. It's not a very comforting one. Where's the comfort in this? You will have tribulation. I'll tell you a bit of a story, a little of a backstory about me. So in February of 2020, that fateful year, uh, (laughs) 
My wife, Alex, and I, we, we came to Morgan Hill to visit the church that I serve at, West Hills, uh, for the first time. We were just engaged at the time. Uh, I was applying for the position I'm serving in now. That was my first time ever in California. We knew we loved the church. We knew we wanted to live here. Um, this was where God wanted us. And at that same time, there were some news headlines spreading about uh, some kind of disease in China, and it was starting to get concerning, but it still felt uh, really far away until all of a sudden it wasn't far away at all, was it? Our last semester in college, we were both uh, completing Bible college and seminary, my, my wife and I. Our last semester with some of our closest friends was cut short. Our wedding was uh, downsized. That, that was a huge understatement. <laughs> um, our first month and a half of marriage was basically lived in isolation in this like basement Airbnb with these like kind of like eat frosted egress <laughs> windows. Uh, and then... And then all of a sudden, we, it was time to go here, and so we drove across the country in our two cars and uh, tried to learn how to live in a brand new place, in a brand new community at a time when you couldn't see people, and if you could see them, you could only see like their eyes. And I'm terrible with faces as is. So, All that to say is you can imagine those first couple of years were, were difficult for us, not just inconvenient, but there were many days of, of anxiety. There were many days of stress in that time. And uh, I don't pretend we had it the worst. I'm sure that many of you, your experience of 2020 and 2021 were far more severe. You went through far greater trials and tribulations. Perhaps you lost loved ones. You lost things that were dear to you. But it was still hard for us. It was still hard for my wife and I. And, and you know, through all of that anxiety and uncertainty that came with that season, you know where I found unexpected comfort? It was actually in this promise right here. In this world, you will have tribulation. I found comfort in that. I'll explain why in a moment. But I don't know about you, but, but, but let me ask you, what do you do when tribulation comes? What do you do when it hits? Because I'll tell you what happens for me. I, I think to myself, what's going on? This isn't going according to plan. This isn't supposed to happen. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever look up at God and go, hey, God, I think you made a little bit of a mistake. I think there's a typo. If you could just hit control Z, on your keyboard, we'll just kind of kind of undo that. That would be great. Because let's be honest, and Jesus, he tells us here in this world you'll have tribulation. What do we what do we want Jesus to say? I don't know. We want him to say, take heart. I'm not gonna let you go through hard things. It's gonna be smooth sailing. You're gonna live a nice, easy, suffering-free life. You're gonna invest in all the right stocks and bonds. You're gonna die peacefully in your sleep at a ripe old age, and then you'll wake up in heaven and think to yourself, wow, this place is, is great, just a little bit better than the earth that I came from. <laughs> you see, when you live life with the expectation that life's gonna be free from tribulation, it's all the more shocking when it actually shows up. Maybe that's why Peter writes to us in 1 Peter 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's our first response. That's our automatic response to trials. It's surprise. We're surprised by them. You know, just as a side note, our surprise at suffering actually proves the existence of God. C.S. Lewis talks about this a bit in Mere Christianity. As he would say, the fact that you realize that things aren't the way they're supposed to be proves that there is an objective way things are supposed to be. Where does that come from? If, if we're all just the product of evolution, how is it that every single human being, Christian or not, recognizes that things are broken and they should be different than that? I th I'll tell you what I believe. I believe that's because we're made in the image of God 
And we are made by a God who is good himself. But in this world, we're gonna have tribulation. I'll tell you why I found comfort in these words. I found comfort in these words because they assured me that no matter how out of control I felt, God was not surprised. His plan was not thwarted. He was still on his throne. That's true for you too in your trial, in your suffering. This 19th century English preacher, Charles Spurgeon, once said, God is too good to be unkind and too wise to be mistaken. And when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. You may not be able to trace God's hand through the trial that you are bearing up under right now. You might not. You might not see why he's doing it, but when you can't see God's hand, you can absolutely trust his heart. I can't promise that you will understand why in this lifetime God allowed you to endure what you did. The Bible doesn't tell us all those answers, but I can say with confidence that when you can't see God's hand, you can trust his heart, you can trust that he is good. I wanna ask you a question because this question kind of changed how I view suffering. I say kinda, it completely changed how I view suffering and I wanna ask it to you too. What if knowing God in and through suffering will bring you more joy now and in eternity than a life that was free of suffering? What if suffering could ultimately be for your eternal joy? It's interesting that right before Jesus talks about tribulation, he promises us peace. That should tell us something about what kind of peace this is. This peace Jesus offers us, it's a peace that you can have in the middle of trial, in the middle of tribulation, in the middle of suffering. I know this sounds like an oxymoron, but as a Christian, you can suffer peacefully. You can suffer peacefully. When you're suffering, when you're in tribulation, should you ask the Father for healing, for reconciliation, for, for relief? Absolutely. It's not wrong to pray for that at all. We should. But alongside that, I would challenge you, pray for peace. Pray for this peace in Jesus Christ that he offers us because it's a peace that tribulation cannot touch. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's a peace that, frankly, the world has no category for. Jesus doesn't end his teaching to his disciples with the promise of tribulation, though. He ends on a note of victory. He says next, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the third promise of verse 33. We can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. He's overcome the world. Tribulation is going to come. Suffering is going to happen. We live in a fallen world, and newsflash, we're following a guy who is hated by the world. They're gonna hate us too. But we can take heart, we can have courage. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. This amazes me. I mean, Jesus, he's just hours away from his death. His soul is troubled. Soon he's gonna be sweating blood in the garden of Gethsemane. His disciples are about to abandon him. He's about to bear the wrath of God on the cross. And his final words to his disciples are words of victory, not of defeat, not of fear, not of submission. They are words of victory, words of conquering. Take heart, have courage. I have overcome the world. What does it mean that Jesus has overcome the world? I just want to give you three brief things. This is what it means that Jesus overcame the world. First, it means that in his life, Jesus overcame the temptations of this world. In his life, Jesus overcame the temptations of this world. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He never caved. He never compromised. Second, it means that in his death, Jesus overcame the ruler of this world, the devil. 
When Jesus died on the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent. In Matthew 12, 29, Jesus says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is talking about Satan in that passage. At the cross, Jesus bound Satan, and he's been stealing people from him ever since. Every time someone repents of their sin and puts their faith in Jesus Christ, Satan loses another one out of his kingdom into the kingdom of light. And third, that Jesus overcame the world, it means that in his resurrection, Jesus overcame the curse of this world, death. Jesus overcame death. You know, around the same time John wrote this gospel of John, give or take a few years, John received a revelation from God. He received a vision from God that we have in our Bibles today is the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And in that vision, John, he gets to see his rabbi again, this time in all of his resurrected glory and power. I just want to read that interaction for you. Here's what it says in Revelation 1.17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What an interesting picture. Jesus says, I have the keys of death. I'm sure many of you have keys for your various jobs that you work. Well, what does it mean if you have keys to something? It means that you have authority over that thing. It means you have control over it. It means you have power over it. You have access. Jesus has the keys of death. What does that mean? It means that he has power, authority, and control over death. He is not mastered by death. He is the master of it. In his resurrection, Jesus overcame the curse of this world, death. Now he's the one holding the keys. He's overcome. But how about for you? Do you you feel like you're overcoming in your life right now? Do you feel like you are overcoming the world, or do you feel like the world is overcoming you, or at least threatening to If you feel like you're barely hanging in there, you're hanging on by a thread, I've got good news for you. And the good news is is that you are gonna make it in Christ. You're gonna make it. It's not gonna be easy. It's not always going to make sense, but you will make it. And I'll tell you how I know that. 1 John 5, 4 says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, everyone. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Have you been born of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? If not, I hope that even this morning, you would choose to place your faith in him. You won't overcome the world. You won't stand up under trial and tribulation. You won't make it to the end unless you turn to Jesus and bow your knee to him. But if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then guess what? By faith, you will be victorious. You will make it. You will overcome because your Savior already did. Jesus overcame every, every temptation. He overcame the devil. He overcame death. And do you know what that means for you? It means that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will too. You will too. You can resist temptation. You can stand firm against the devil. You can be faithful unto death. Not in your strength, but in his. And through every, every tribulation, every trial you encounter in this life, you can go straight to the Father in prayer because he hears you and he loves you. You know, tribulation isn't easy. If it were easy, it really wouldn't be tribulation, would it? But take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. 
that means that we will too. Let's pray. God, we are weak. We are sinful, Lord. We, uh, we don't have it in us to make it to the end, God. Sometimes we don't feel like we have it in us to make it to the end of the day, let alone the end of our lives and be found faithful. But Jesus, in every situation where we would have caved and given into temptation, Lord, you stood firm. When you were tempted by the devil in the wilderness, God, you stood firm against him. And Jesus, when you endured death, you stood firm to the end and you resurrected, claiming victory over death. And so now, Jesus, we don't, we don't win this war in our own power, Jesus. We walk in the path that you've made for us. Help us, Lord, to overcome God, help us to overcome today. Help us to overcome in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be found faithful to you before you, God, when we see you face to face. By your power, Lord, not ours. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.